Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. For omkring 20 år siden, da jeg var en helt ung journalist her på Dagbladet Information, der mødtes jeg med en iransk filminstruktør, der hed Moshir Bahari. Moshir Bahari havde lavet to film om det nye Iran. Om reformernes Iran, om de små bevægelser, der trods alt var i den islamiske republik 20 år efter den blev grundlagt i 1979. Den ene hed fodbold efter den iranske stil, som handlede om, hvordan kvinder havde fået lov til at gå på stadion i Iran. Den anden hed Andalon Came a Spider, som er historien om æderkoppemorene, der siden er blevet velkendt her i Danmark, efter at Ali Abbasi har lavet sin udgave af historien, der hedder Holy Spider. Masia Bahari var filminstruktøren dengang, og han forklarede, at det han gerne ville, var at vise et billede af kompleksiteten i Iran, at folk skulle forstå, at ja, det var et repressivt regime, og ja, han var imod det regime. Men han havde set sin far blive fængslet som politisk modstander under Shahen. Han havde set sin søster blive fængslet som politisk modstander under den islamiske republik. Og han troede ikke på revolution som metode. Han troede ikke på, at den voldelige protest ville vælte regimet i Iran. Han troede kun på, at det ville fremkalde volden i regimet. Derfor valgte han dengang for 20 år siden at tro på, at der inden for den islamiske republik var mulighed for fremskridt, var mulighed for liberaliseringer. Der var dengang forskellige fløje i revolutionsgarden, som er den del af militæret, der har den øverste magt og som skal bevare den islamiske republik. I den var der både folk, der var tilhængere af reformfløjen og folk, der var hardliners. Så sådan var det hele vejen rundt. I 1997 valgte iranerne Mohammed Khatami, den smilende, charmerende, vestligt orienterede leder som præsident. Han var stadigvæk en del af den islamiske republik, men han repræsenterede en anden vej end hardlinerne i vogternes råd, som først var Ayatollah Khomeini og derefter hans efterfølge Ali Khamenei. Masiar, som jeg interviewede dengang, fortalte mig, at Iran var meget mere end bare religiøs undertrykkelse og terror. Det var meget mere end billedet af mulerne, som man så udefra. Det var et samspil af alle mulige forskellige faktorer, og han troede på, at der var et andet Iran, et demokratisk Iran. Et frigjort Iran, som den islamiske republik på lang sigt ikke ville kunne holde nede. Jeg er selv Irans gift, og han sagde, at min kone og jeg vi skulle sørge for at rejse tilbage til Iran og prøve at se, hvad det var, der skete. Der gik så nogle år, hvor Masia og jeg mailede lidt frem og tilbage, når der skete noget i Iran, og han fastholdt sin linje, at ja, Rotami havde været en kæmpe skuffelse som Irans præsident. Han bragte ikke reformer, men han gav iranerne en fornemmelse af, at de havde ret til frihed, og den fornemmelse kunne man ikke tage fra dem igen. Så pludselig i 2009, så var der rygter om, at Masia Bahari var forsvundet. Han var taget til Tætteren for at dække valget, som førte til den grønne revolution. Han var reporter for Newsweek dengang, og han var forsvundet, og det hed så, at han var blevet taget til fange. Hillary Clinton og flere fremtrædende internationale politikere var ude at kræve hans løsladelse. Og så en dag, så råbte min kone inden for stuen, kom ind og se, kom ind og se, din ven er på tv, han er blevet ødelagt. Og der så jeg så Masia Bahari. Manden, som havde fortalt mig, at man skulle tro på det bedste i det islamiske regime. Manden, som havde fortalt mig, at den islamiske republik Iran ikke bare var undertrykkelse og terror. Jeg så ham hjernevasket, ødelagt efter tortur og mishandling, sidde på tv med et fuldstændig tomt blik i øjnene og sige, at den grønne revolution 
var noget, der var skabt af USA og fremmede agenter i landet, og den havde ingen legitimitet. Det var det, der hedder en forceret tilståelse, en forced confession. Senere flygtede Masjah Bahari og kom til London og skrev bogen Then They Came For Me, om hele sit liv, om hvordan det var at tro på det bedste i et regime, som alle andre liberale kræfter afvist, og til sidst blive straffet for det. Hvordan det var at blive til politisk fange akkurat som sin far og sin søster, selvom man havde prøvet at kæmpe en anden vej, og hvad han havde af tillid tilbage til det, han som han kaldte for det andet Iran, det demokratiske Iran, og hvorfor han stadigvæk var skeptisk over for revolutionen som metode. Det var for mig fuldstændig hjerteskærende, at det menneske, han skulle gennemgå den skæbne, at lige præcis han skulle ende med at blive tortureret, mishandlet og tvunget til den ultimative ydmygelse, som der undsiger sig selv efter tvang fra autoritære ledere. John Stewart lavede senere spillefilmen Rosewater, hvor den danske skuespiller Kim Bodnia faktisk spiller bøden om alt det, der skete for Masia og Bahadi dengang. Your wife was Iranian, yeah? Yes, she is Iranian. Yes. Okay, yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> da opstanden i Iran brød ud i dette efterår, da de langvarige protester, som nærmer sig en revolutionær tilstand, da de startede, der var der en, som jeg heller end nogen andre ville høre, hvordan han så det der skete. En, som på den ene side havde mærket det absolut hårdeste og mest brutale fra regimens side, og på den anden side altid havde afvist revolutionen og den voldelige modstand som metode. Det var Masia Bahari. Og heldigvis, da jeg skrev til ham, kunne han godt huske mig, og vi havde talt sammen for 20 år siden. Han kunne også huske, hvad han havde sagt dengang, og han står et helt andet sted i dag. Han bor nu i London, filminstruktør, journalist. Forbindelsen er lidt dårlig, til gengæld er hans fortælling fuldstændig fantastisk. Her er min samtale med Masia Bahari, 20 år efter den første, hvor han har været fængslet og blevet pint og pladet i mellemtiden. Og nu står og jagter en ny generation gennemfører nogle helt vilde protester i Iran. You know, when we first met, it was almost 20 years ago, and you had two films that were shown here in Copenhagen, football, Iranian style, and along came a spider. And it was very important for you at that time to give people a sense of another Iran, not just the Iran of the mullahs and terrorism, but but give a people a sense of, of all the other things that were taking place in Iran. Can you tell me what was the ambition at the time for you? Well, you know, uh, that is uh, still my ambition. I've always uh, considered myself as a translator of the reality of Iran to foreigners, especially people in the West, especially people who speak English. And what I want to do is that I would like to just uh, give, uh, give an image of Iran that includes all different shades of gray from... Uh, of course, the mullahs and the revolutionary guards, to artists, to young people, to rappers, to people who are into fashion and music and arts and everything. So uh, I've always considered myself as an interpreter. And when I came to Copenhagen for uh, it was for a film festival, I made a film called Football Iranian Style, which was about uh, the passion of women for football. And as you know, Iranian women cannot go to stadiums to watch football. And even now that they've lifted the ban, they still face many, many restrictions to go there. So that film was made in 2001, I believe. 
and that was about it. And then in along came a spider, which recently was adopted into a Danish Iranian yes. movie called the Holy Spider. Uh, that was about a serial killer who whose story was covered by this very, very strong female journalist. And in addition to the killer that we see in the film, she, the journalist, is a main presence as well. So that's always been my ambition. But of course, when you consider the fact that the mullahs and the revolutionary guards and the reactionaries have the majority of power in Iran, it's inevitable to uh, cover Iran with mullahs being really prominent in a sense. But at the same time, we always want to make sure that we are hearing other voices from Iran as well. At the time, you were also saying something to me that stuck with me. You said that, that yes, uh, the president Khatami, that we had a lot of hopes for it here in the West, within Iran, you said that, well, he didn't deliver on the reforms that we expected, but he did manage to give the Iranian people the sense that they deserved something more, that he was actually uh, giving a collective conscience that they could have more, you could have, have more. And you said at the time that there were actually uh, around the, the millennium that progress were taking place, small cultural steps, the ban of music was lifted, women gained entrance, more places. Could you tell what was your analysis of the political game in Iran at that time? Well, you know, Khatami was elected in um, May 1997. And at that time, uh, the revolution was 18 years old. The revolution had tested, had gone through a war, an eight-year war with Iraq from 1980 to 1988. Thousands of people uh, were murdered by the regime and many and thousands of regime functionaries were also murdered by different groups. And at that time, uh, Iran had just was just coming out of a very long period, 18 years of infighting, dictatorship, and people were just tired. But at the same time, we can say that many people, if not the majority, they believed in the Islamic Republic at that time. And at that time, they were regarded by the government of Iran as the Ummah, as the Islamic nation. But when they went to the ballot boxes in uh, May 1997, and they voted for Khatami, who was not the chosen candidate of the Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, they proved that they were not the Ummah, they were not the Islamic nation, but they were citizens of their country. And that is a very big difference between what people regard themselves in Iran and what the Islamic regime regards people. The people, at least from May 1997, they are regarded themselves as citizens of the country. But the Islamic regime from 1979 has been regarding people as the servants of this master. First Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who ruled Iran between 1979 and 1988, and then since 1988, 
Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who's still the Supreme Leader of Iran. So at that time, when I came to Copenhagen, Copenhagen in 2001, Khatami was in power. Khatami had given some hope to people that they could gain their rights as citizens of their country. Uh, many artists, they were working in Iran at that time. Many Iranians from diaspora had gone back to Iran and they still hoped that the regime could be reformed. And <laughs> 20 years later, we have a totally different view of Iran. And you know, what happened in 2009 during the green movement, millions of people marched silently in Iran. I was witness there, uh, millions of people watched silently in the center of Tehran. And when they were passing by murals of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the current Supreme Leader of Iran, they were looking at him at his murals with a sense of disappointment that we expected much more from you. We expected more flexibility because Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in 2009, the president, the hardline president was reelected. And many people, if not the majority, did not believe that he was worthy of uh, being the president of Iran. So they wanted Khamenei to annul the election and uh, announce a re-election, but Khamenei did not do that and told people that they have to go home, otherwise they would be, uh, you know, they would be responsible for the bloodshed on the street, meaning that they would be killed. So people were passing by silently by his mules and they were looking at him with disappointment. 13 years later, right now, the first thing that, uh, uh, you know, one of the main slogans of the movement right now is fuck Khamenei, fuck Khamenei and his family. It's totally different from that kind of reverence in the 1990s, then some sort of disappointment in 2009. Right now, they just, you know, death to Khamenei, fuck Khamenei, fuck Khamenei's family. That is the slogan in the country right now. And, you know, we have understood that the regime is not reformable. Whether it used to be reformable or not, we don't know. Most probably we were all wrong. Maybe I was delusional as well at that time. And I thought that the regime was wrong. But I was among millions of people who voted for Fatemi. And we all thought that the regime should reform itself for its own survival. There was also, I think, in your analysis, which of course was shared by a lot of people at the time, and I think as a citizen of a country, you almost also have an obligation to believe in the hope at hand, to see the opportunities that there are. Uh, but but you, you, your, your own history is also that your father was imprisoned during the Shah. He was a political prisoner for being communist. Your sister was imprisoned later in the in the Islamic Republic, both for being communist. And there was also a sense that you had seen political violence in Iran. You had seen revolution, that you were skeptical of this method. That's the impression I got, at least. Yeah, of course. I'm still uh, very skeptical of any violence that's perpetrated by the protesters. But I do not blame young people for resorting to violence and reacting violently. 
because there is no space for them to express themselves uh, in a peaceful way. And of course, we can look at, you know, nonviolent movements in the history, and we can say that nonviolent movement, peaceful movements have been successful in the Eastern Bloc and, you know, in different countries. But it's very difficult to expect young people who are passionately against this regime, who are passionately against everything that this represent this regime represents to not to resort to violence and also when the regime is uh, violent in itself i can you know i don't condone the violence i don't think it's right i don't think that it is going to be fruitful and i have been trying to interview different people who've gone through uh, peaceful uh, revolutions in Serbia, in Ukraine, in Tunisia, to learn their lessons. But at the same time, I think it is very understandable to see that, you know, young people in Iran right now, they are resorting to violence just because they are being brutalized. They're not only brutalized now, they've been brutalized for the past four decades. So as a result, you see that they are acting passionately and maybe at times irrationally, but this is something that's uh, very much understandable. And I think it's definitely understandable. And I think it's also morally defensible. Definitely it's, it's morally defensible for the situation that they're in. Yeah, we have to also distinguish between different kinds of violence. Sure. I mean, the violence that we see from young people right now in reacting is sometimes uh, you know, burning a garbage can or burning a bus or, you know, burning a passage, the paramilitary building or, a, you know, seminary. Or uh, that is very different from, you know, bombing and, you know, acts of terror against the regime, which is, you know, that's not defensible or acting or killing the family members of the regime, you know, which is not defensible. So I think uh, we have to always be very uh, careful about not condoning uh, violence from the organized uh, terrorist opposition to the regime as well, you know, like the MEK, you know, Mujahideen Khalq and others. So I think we have to be, we are in a very, very difficult uh, position right now that we are facing a brutal regime, uh, unprincipled regime that has no values, that is thriving in hypocrisy and violence. And at the same time, we have the revolution against this regime is led by very passionate, very young people who may not have historical experience. But at the same time, my sympathy is always with the young people of Iran, especially women who are leading these protests. You came to cover the election in 2009 that ended up in, in the Green Revolution. And it's covered in your in your memoir that they came for me and also in, in, in the film Rosewater, where, by the way, there's a Danish actor playing a leading role. But, but yeah, you came... Yeah, the yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you came to, to Iran in 2009. How did experiencing the revolution, what happened to yourself, change your own view on the possibility of reforming Iran? 
Well, the thing is that uh, when I went to Iran, uh, you know, I was going back and forth to Iran and I was living in Iran uh, part time at that time. So after four years of Ahmadinejad, who was elected in 2005, I had understood somehow that the regime is corrupt, that the Revolutionary Guards are getting more power, that they're consolidating their power. And the fact that, you know, it's very important to understand that the Revolutionary Guards is not only a military organization, it is also an industrial organization. They have universities, they have schools, they have hospitals, and they own many industries in Iran. So they have many football clubs. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to you know, understand the extent of the power of the Revolutionary Guards. So in 2009, I, I, was, I was trying to understand the power of the Revolutionary Guards. And of course, I was covering the re-election of the Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and the protests that followed it. And then I was arrested by the Revolutionary Guards. So uh, I always say that during my 118 days of incarceration in Iran, 107 days in solitary confinement, I did not expand my knowledge of the Revolutionary, of the Islamic Republic and the Revolutionary Guards. But because I did not have any access to any books or any uh, media, but my knowledge of the Revolutionary Guard really deepened because my conversations with my interrogator, who was a Revolutionary Guard, who was played by Kim Badnia in the film <laughs> Rosewater, and the interrogation itself and the different methods of interrogation, the psychological torture that I went through, the physical torture that I went through, they really showed me the real, you know, character of the Islamic Republic, of what this regime is really, really capable of doing. So my, my understanding was very different. You know, I, I understood that uh, how brutal this regime can be, how hypocritical this regime can be. But at the same time, I understood how misguided the regime is. You know, when you read my book or when you see the film, you see that, you know, the interrogator believes in the most idiotic uh, conspiracy theories that, you know, many people, you know, believe in the West. You know, what Kanye West was saying, uh, you know, about the Jews, uh, you know, last week with Alex, in the interview with Alex Jones, that was, uh, you know, that is something that, you know, many, many uh, idiots in Iran, they believe in. I understood the depth of uh, ignorance and idiocy of the Islamic Republic and its functionaries. And at the same time, I understood the depth of their power, their violence, and how far they would go in order to survive. In the book, more than in the film, but it's also in, in Rosewater, there, there are these, uh, the, the, where, you, you, where you think of what you've learned from your father and your, your sister, their experience. Uh, what did that mean to you when, when you were in prison? Well, you know, my father was a trade union and activist in the late 1940s and early 1950s. 
a communist and went to prison after the 1953 coup in Iran. And he suffered, you know, physical torture and for four years. And he was, he, you know, many of his friends went through the same thing. So I grew up listening to all these stories of communism and torture and resistance while I was growing up. And then my sister went through a very similar experience uh, when she was arrested in 1980 and then she was released in 1988. So uh, she went through, you know, torture and mock executions and all that. So uh, I knew how dangerous politics can be. But at the same time, I grew up with the failure, you know, I witnessed the failure of communism uh, in front of my eyes. You know, I visited uh, different Eastern European countries. So I'm, I was not interested in being a political activist or member of the Communist Party. Uh, but, but I was very much interested in politics itself. So I never regarded myself as a political activist or activist of any kind. Even now that part of my work is human rights activism, I always say that I am an accidental activist. <laughs> I, someone that, you know, who's been pushed into activism by the Islamic Republic. Uh, so I always wanted to avoid activism and I always wanted to tell the story and I never wanted to be part of the story. And, you know, the, then when I went to prison and because of the amazing campaign that my wife and my colleagues had for me that led to my release, I had the obligation, I had that responsibility to be an activist and to be the voice of thousands of Iranians who are going through what I went through and what I went through as, you know, I have to emphasize that what I went through in prison, you know, with the very bad physical and psychological torture, with beatings, with, you know, threats of execution and all that. What I went through is nothing compared to what many young people and many unknown political prisoners are going through in Iran. And, you know, I'm hearing horrible stories in Iran of, you know, hundreds of prisoners being in a room that's designed only for 20 people. And, you know, that they don't even have the room to, uh, you know, to stand up, to sit down or lie down. They have to urinate on each other because there's, they don't have access to the toilet. It's just horrible stories. So it, I, what I went through was nothing compared to what many of young uh, unknown prisoners are going through. So I feel that I have a responsibility to be their voice. Today, this uprising is very different from what we saw in 2009, 2017, and 2019 for several reasons. One of them is that this is led by an, a very young generation. So I think I read somewhere that the, most of the protesters were between 16 and 22 or 24. Yeah, about 16 to 22, yeah. And, and this is a generation that grew up without the promises of Khatami, without the possibility of reform. This is a, a, a generation with a totally different mindset from your, your generation. How would you characterize this generation? Well, you know, what is happening in Iran, it has surprised everyone. 
it has surprised even the people on the streets. When the protest happened on the 19th of September, and no one expected that the protest would continue three months later. When I talked to the, some of the protesters in Iran, even they did not expect that to happen. But what we are witnessing right now is that this generation, young generation of Iranians who studied under the Islamic Republic, who went to school of the Islamic Republic, who were educated by Islamic Republic teachers, they hate the Islamic Republic with passion. They do not want to be members of this Islamic Republic. They want to be citizens of their country. That is why the main slogan in Iran is woman, life, freedom, meaning that we want to live in a country that, where women are respected. We want to live in a country where life is respected and we want to have freedom. And these are the three things that are anathema to uh, the Islamic Republic, that if they give, they respect women, life or freedom, there, was, there is no Islamic Republic. So this, uh, and also what is different between this uh, protest and the protest in 2009 is that this is a leaderless revolution. This is a leaderless, and it's a revolution. You know, it's a revolution because they want to change the regime. It's not a reformist movement. So they want to change the regime, and there is no leaders. In 2009, we had Musavi and we had Karubi, who were reformists, who were regime insiders, who wanted to reform the regime. But this uh, generation of young Iranians they are leaders in their own neighborhoods. They are leaders sometimes in their own streets and they just want to change the regime and they do not care about, you know, uh, what is going to, who is coming to power. They just want to get rid of this regime. And that is why, you know, unlike 2019 or 2017, that you would hear the names of this group or that group, like, you know, the Shah's father or the Shah, this time, we do not hear any slogans, you know, long live Pahlavi, long live this or that. All we are hearing is that death to Khamenei and death to dictator and woman, life, freedom. Something that was always very, very difficult following Iran from the distance. And I met an, an old correspondent from the Middle East once who said that Iranian politics is the riddle of my life. It's the, the, the way power is distributed between the revolutionary guard, the military and the Supreme Council and then the parliament and the president to, to some extent. You write in your book, then they came for me in, in the end that in fact, it's slowly turning into a military dictatorship, Iran, with a kind of theological superstructure. Who are the young people up against in Iran today? Who is it that they, they should topple? They are against the regime as a whole, but the regime as a whole these days is mainly the uh, revolutionary guards because the revolutionary guards, they have the majority of power in Iran. The revolutionary guards, they are basically the backbone of the regime. And as a result, the young people, they are fighting against the revolutionary guards, really. 
they are saying death to Khamenei, but they're saying death to Khamenei, meaning that, you know, they're death to Khamenei and everything that he represents. And he is the commander of, he's also the commander of the armed forces. So they are saying death to, you know, his armed forces as well. And do the military, do they need, could they rule alone? You know, there are some people saying, well, well, maybe if they could, we could have a military dictatorship that without the figurehead of, of Khamenei or the theological superstructure of, of, the, of the Guardian Council. Could they rule without that or do they need it? Well, uh, you know, some revolutionary gods, that is what they are dreaming about. They are dreaming about having a military dictatorship uh, very similar to Syria or, you know, uh, Hafez al-Assad Syria or Qaddafi's Libya or Saddam Hussein's Iraq, that they can give people some uh, social freedom, they can keep people happy, and then they can, you know, rule. But at the same time, the essence and, and the essence of this uh, Islamic Republic is this ideological belief and the uh, revolutionary Islam. So if you take that away from the Islamic Republic and, you know, the revolutionary guards, they have nothing to sell, really. They have to really rule through a brutal military rule, which can sustain, which can might be sustainable for a few years. But at the end of the day, they would uh, suffer the same kind of fate that any kind of dictatorship would suffer, that, you know, they have to uh, dedicate all the resources of the country to protecting their rule. They have to dedicate all the resources of the country to the military and the security apparatus. And at the end of the day, they are running out of providing people with, you know, the basics. And that will, you know, that will lead to their demise. And at the same time, we have to understand that the Revolutionary Guards is not a homogenous uh, entity either. In 1997, many, many uh, Revolutionary Guards voted for Khatami, who was not... Ali Khamenei, the Supreme Leader's uh, favorite candidate. In 2009, many Revolutionary Guards did not support Ahmadinejad, who was Khamenei's favorite, uh, who was Khamenei's favorite candidate. So Revolutionary Guards are really not a homogenous entity either. And when I hear people saying that, you know, the Revolutionary Guards can uh, rule Iran, we have to ask them, first of all, which Revolutionary Guards, and also if parts of the Revolutionary Guards want to rule Iran, they first have to have a coup against parts of their own rank and file, and then uh, be able to rule uh, Iran. If you look at the, the, the situation right now, which seems to have come to a real radical confrontation between the protesters in all provinces of, of Iran and with a huge legitimacy, it seems. Do you see someone in the regime defecting? Do you see people in the military or in the revolutionary guard taking the sides of the young people? Or do you see someone, where, where do you see possible alliances for the young people in this regime? Or do you think they should, in order to win, that they should 
yeah, grab power totally, which seems like almost impossible. Almost, that's impossible. And also it's very difficult to, it's very difficult to know uh, what young people we are talking about, because when we are talking about young people, we are not talking about an organized group of people who have a political party and they are organized and they are coordinating amongst themselves to do this or that, you know, on this or that day. So it's... Uh, it's very difficult to, you know, to talk about young people as a whole because there's no such a thing uh, at the moment. So uh, what will what can happen is that I don't I think that for this uh, movement in order to succeed, they need to have some sort of organization. They need to have some sort of leader, even if uh, the leaders are, you know, icons of the revolution rather than the actual leaders of the revolution, even if they are people who maybe someone like, you know, Václav Havel or uh, Lech Wałęsa, that's, uh, you know, they can come out of organizations. I think someone like that has to come through the ranks. It can be through the... Uh, political prisoners or it can be from uh, you know uh, union activists or teachers or lawyers someone like that so uh, in that case they need to have like any other revolution they need to have parts of the regime as their uh, allies they need to have part of the military as their allies they need to have part of the revolutionary guards as their allies they need to have uh, some of the regime functionaries as their allies. So I think that is the prescription that I have for the revolution. But of course, revolutions don't happen like that. And as you said, it's very unpredictable that what will happen in Iran and what will we'll see in the you know next few months or next few years. What we are seeing right now is that the regime has is using more brutality against protesters. They have, they have been killing more than 400 people in the past three months. They have executed the first person and they're saying that there will be more executions. And that will just make people angrier and angrier. And that is the, uh, I think that's the strategy of the regime to uh, resort to more violence and uh, because they want to make the protesters more violence and they want to aggravate protesters more because they know how to deal with violence this is a very violent regime and they know how to deal violence with violence and at the same time uh, they want to prevent any kind of unity among people who oppose the regime the, either the opposition are, are outside who are already fighting against each other or uh, people within the country. So, you know, we are not even in the middle of this fight. We are in the very, very uh, early stages of this fight. So you and I should have this conversation, I think, in a six months time to have a better understanding of what is going on in Iran, because I think the Islamic Republic is like a dying person who is suffering from an illness, which is a disenchanted population, and they are feeling something right now in their body. But 
I think it needs time. It needs a little bit of perspective to understand what will happen in the future. And what I'm telling you is that what has happened in Iran, what has been happening in Iran, has surprised everyone. Even the people on the street are surprised by what is going on. And no one, no one can tell you what will happen in the next two or three months or the next year or so. And if anyone tells you they know what is going to happen, they're just bullshitting. I have just one last question, Mosyar. Sure. Uh, when we go to all the, the protests here and the San Zendigi, also the movement and, and uh, singing Paroy, you know, there is a double atmosphere. On the one hand, I see exiled Iranians who lost their country, who feel that they got it back somehow. There's an enormous pride of being an Iranian. And I also see people who used to have conflicts and, and disagreements, they, they come together. This is really a beautiful moment, I think, in most of Europe for, for the exiled Iranian community. And so there's this sense of enormous pride and enormous hope. And this, this is a new generation. You cannot be the speaker for them. You cannot speak for them. You can just listen to them. But there's also, of course, the anxiety. What's the end game of this? And then the next question is, we who are not there, we who are not part of their fight in, in Iran, and we cannot speak for them, what is the best thing for us to do who are outside Iran to support them? Well, you know, uh, the community outside of Iran, especially people who live in democracies, they have to understand that they are living in democracies. They have to understand that they have a vote, they have access to the media, they can do certain things in their country that can affect uh, what's going on in Iran uh, as a whole. And you know, I visit America almost on a monthly basis and I give uh, lectures and speeches and you know, Iranian Americans, they come to me and they say, what can we do for our country? And the first question I ask them is that, do you know who is your Congress uh, representative? Do you know who is your senator? And 90% of the time, they do not even know who is the Congress uh, representative, who is the senator, and it's like most Americans. And because of that, you know, they, they cannot. And I said, well, that is the first thing that you have to do. You have to understand that you have a vote. And I think it's the same thing in Europe as well, that Iranians, especially Iranians in Northern Europe, which is a big community in Sweden, in Denmark, in Germany, in Norway, in Belgium, in Holland, they have to understand that they have a vote, especially this new generation of Iranians who have grown up in uh, Denmark and other societies, they have to understand that they have a vote, they have a voice, and these political parties, these politicians in Denmark and other countries, they need to hear those voices and they have to take advantage of, of this opportunity. And they have to be the voice of Iranian people in their country. And also they always have to remember that they cannot lead the revolution and they should not endanger the lives of people inside Iran. I hate it when Iranians in the diaspora, they're saying that, you know, why more people are not going to the streets? Why more people are not doing this or that? And I tell them that you don't have a right to say that. You're not living in that country. 
you do not know what is going on. You're not under that pressure. If you really want to go and fight in Iran, why don't you just go back? Go back and fight. You cannot expect people to behave in a certain way when you're living in a comfortable life in Copenhagen or London or Paris or whatever. You have to always respect people's choices when they are inside the country. Well, Masya, thank you so much for taking your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye bye. Det var så min samtale med Masia Bahari. I næste uge, der taler jeg med Laurence Tubiana, som er en fantastisk skikkelse. Født og opvokset i Algeriet, gennemlevet 68-oprøret i Paris, var international kommunist som ung, siden blev stærkt engageret i klimabevægelsen, var chefforhandler for den franske premierminister Lionel Jospin i 1997 under forhandlingen af Kyoto-protokollen, og i dag regnes som hovedarkitekten bag klimabevægelsens største triumf, Paris-aftalen fra 2015. God jul herfra. Vi vender tilbage mellem jul og nytår med Laurence Tubiana om alt fra aktivisme til virkelig handling i klimaspørgsmålet. Håb, vold og idéer.